Konnichiwa, and welcome back to the Oki Oki Show. I'm Donna. And I'm Brandon. And this month, we are looking at the movie Miss Hokusai, an animated film about the daughter of the famous artist Hokusai, released in 2015. Before we get into that... The film was released in 2015, not his daughter. This is true. This is very true. But before we get into that... Brandon, what have you been watching lately? Or reading or consuming? Um, I can go first if you'd like. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I finally caught up and finished the most recent season of Agretzko on Netflix. And we've also both been watching some M. Night Shyamalan films for our other Less Safe for Work podcast, The Bargain Den. And then I've been doing a lot of reading of various books. How about you, Brandon? Uh, I've been watching a number of different things. Primarily, uh, I guess I'll probably the thing I'd like to bring is I, I watched uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion, the TV series, the original TV series, and then the film that followed it, the end of Evangelion for the first time. And uh, very good. Highly recommend those. Uh, those are very, very good. I've also been watching some of the work director Barbara Hammer here recently. Um, That's such a powerful name. Powerful filmmaker. Oh, goodness. So you're going to have to fact check me on this. I want to say in the 70s, very new age for the time period, femi- feminist, uh, gay and lesbian film. Very good. Hmm. That sounds interesting. Yeah. Well, before we start getting into the plot and everything, just a quick note to the audience. If you've been keeping up with the Okie Okie show, we've gone through a few iterations and we are changing the format slightly again. This time we are looking at doing just one research topic apiece for each of these episodes in the interest of time, both for us and for you, the listener. Yeah, this will give us a little bit more time to focus on talking about what we thought about the film, as well as some general ideas and themes that we thought that the movies were maybe going for instead of bringing those as topics themselves. And this also, certain movies are easy to find and do research for. Others, sometimes, you know, we'll have one topic that we're a little bit more passionate about than the other. And it's pretty easy, typically, for us both to find at least one topic to talk about. However, sometimes certain films... You know, there's just not as much for us to kind of pick through and find a uh, facet to do some research on. So hopefully this will kind of streamline the show a little bit and we'll try it for a bit. If it doesn't work, we'll bring back two or, you know, who knows, maybe we'll write a book for each episode. <laughs> so uh, at the end of the episode, let us know what you think about the new format. Hey, before we jump into talking about the movie, wanted to give a heads up. We are going to be spoiling Miss Hokusai as well as uh, we're going to be spoiling some aspects of The Ring the horror film from, oh goodness, some year, early aughts, uh, the film we talked about back in October for our Scary Movie Month. So I just wanted to give a heads up before we jump into that to let you know. With that, I guess let's jump in with the plot. Yeah, do you want to kick things off? Yeah, so Miss Hokusai is about Oe, the daughter of Katsushika Hokusai, and she is also an artist and it kind of reveals a lot about Hokusai the art master without the movie being about him. The movie definitely focuses on Oe. We see her struggle as an artist and also as a sister. 
She has a younger sister who was blind. She really wants to be there for her, even though her father has made himself very distant from his youngest daughter. And so we kind of watch the progression of Oe going through and being this apprentice for Hokusai and having to kind of put up with a number of the other male apprentices that are both yearning to have a spot uh, learning from Hokusai as well as uh, making their own names in the Japanese art world. We're also kind of going through the motions of Oe having to somewhat kind of clean up after her father as well as learn from him from time to time. Um, this shows uh, in the form of uh, having to finish paintings on behalf of Hokusai that would otherwise have left them in some hot water with some high, uh, well-off figures in the city of Edo, which is future location for Tokyo. Mm-hmm. Having Oe finish a dragon portrait of, uh, well, of a dragon. And they have a lot of supernatural experiences it's very tied in with the art like the dragon appears before her um, when oa goes to paint him in another instance they they know that the the younger daughter has died uh, oa is with her father hokusai um, when they both learn that her spirit assumedly has followed home the apprentice that's when they learn that the younger sister oh now has died that's pretty much the end of the film. Mm-hmm. It has a recap at that point of kind of the rest of Oe's and Hokusai's lives, um, where Hokusai, of course, became the famous artist, even more famous than he was at the time this film takes place. And Oe continued to make art, but not nearly to the fame and success of her father. So um, I also believe it says that eventually Oe did kind of disappear and drop off the face of the earth. Um, Her remains were never found, so we don't know exactly when they passed away, but it was much later in life. Um, What did you think of this movie? I really enjoyed this movie. I cried whenever Oh Now died. Like, you can kind of see it coming, but it's very, very sad. It's a very touching movie. I, uh, I did, in watching this, as soon as Oh Now showed up, I, I said to you, I said, if this little girl dies, I'm going to quit. <laughs> and uh, so I was pretty, pretty upset that that followed through on that promise. It is pretty obvious. I feel like, I mean, if you watch enough film in general, but specifically anime, there's just some of the tropes, something about the way that these characters were presented. You just kind of knew that disaster was on the horizon. And it was. Um, could not be just a happy story with happy characters having nothing bad happen to them because that wouldn't be interesting, would it? Right. But another thing that was really cool, um, less sad, but just neat, uh, they integrated famous Hokusai paintings throughout Mm. the animation. I don't know if we've said at this point, but it is an animated film. (laughs) And uh, sometimes the animation style... Uh, morphs into a Hokusai painting um, for just a brief moment. Yeah. Um, you happen to know what the, is that the Great Wave? What is the Wave painting called? Yeah, there's there's a more official name for it, but I, I think a lot of people recognize it as the Great Wave. Kanagawa. The Great Wave of Kanagawa. Uh, I was close. 
I'm yeah. pretty proud of myself for getting the great wave part right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think I think that is what most people colloquially call it. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, and it is animated. It's very interesting because it, it kind of blends a number of different animation styles together, including, you know, traditional hand-drawn 2D animation with computer-generated images at times and uses a different different styles and techniques. Uh, not that I see too, too often in animated films, especially here that we've checked out on the Okioki show. So, you know, if this story maybe is kind of on the fence for you, I think it's definitely worth checking out um, for the animation alone. I think it's very, very good. Right. Well, and I have to assume if, if you're even slightly interested in this film, you have at least some interest in art. <laughs> yeah. But if you are interested in it for the art, the animation style, just the regular hand-drawn 2D animation style is also really interesting. I like it a lot. It's very expressive and each character is very personalized very much so now i mean this is definitely a a period piece style movie mixed with some non-fiction kind of fantasy realism you know what with the presence of ghost dragons and spirits and the like now do you feel as though it has any other kinds of messages trying to get across or anything i mean there's a lot of themes regarding family and work and work and life balance and things along those lines but I don't know. Did you pick up anything else from this? That sounds, that sounds mm -hmm. kind of demeaning in its sense, but, but uh, I mean, um, I think there's, there's also a theme of appreciating. Oh, I remember reading in a review actually of this movie somewhere, something along the lines of like how some people can, can create and others can't create and they can only observe. Everyone has an art taste, but some people can, make it happen and others can see it and some people can do both right so i think i think that's there as well of not only what it is to make versus appreciate art but also what it means to appreciate art because the little sister oh now and her blindness is actually one of the more appreciative of nature in this movie see a lot of her experiencing things in a very deep way. I can see that. That makes sense. Um, before we get into our topics, there was um, a couple of things I wanted to bring up first. One of them, I found this and I thought this was really interesting. Uh, we watched the the Japanese version of this, not the American dub. But I just thought it was kind of cool from a personal perspective. The character... Uh, Utagawa Kuninao is played by Robbie Damon, which I thought was really neat. Um, I'm a longtime fan of the show Critical Role. Um, so he played D&D &D with those folks for this most recent season, which I enjoyed. And then um, the other thing I just wanted to talk about was the music for this. Um, mm -hmm. I didn't do a lot of research into this, but I think as far as like if I were to knock this film for anything, and it wasn't even like it was all that negative, but it had some very interesting music choices for a period piece animation like this. Yeah, because sometimes it would, it seemed like stick with music that fit the time period and the setting in general. And other times it just didn't. And for no especially compelling reason that I could tell. Yeah, and, and if you haven't seen the film, it's this kind of just early 2000s generic rock is the best way to put it. Um, and I don't mean that to be like pejorative of Japanese rock and roll or anything. I've heard a lot of really, really good, interesting 
Japanese rock. And maybe in a different context, this would have fit better, but it's just lots of like, I don't know, slightly distorted kind of showy guitar riffs. Like when she's just kind of walking over a bridge. Power chord progressions that are like, I don't know, the kind that I feel like should be for for hyping you up, you know, like yeah. upbeat, kind of like powerful guitar. And it's like, I don't, I, she's just walking. Like, yeah. what? It's very strange. Neither of those are the thing I brought. I just wanted to, to point those out before we hopped into our, our topics. Um, anything else you want to touch on before we hop into those? No. Okay. Do you want to go first? Do you want me to go first? I do. I would like to go first. Okay. Because my topic actually addresses something you mentioned a little bit earlier about the kind of magical realism quality of the film. Because I think it's important to note that, well, for a Western audience, that is how this would be perceived as like, oh, weird. There's like ghosts and spirits and supernatural things happening. Yeah, and I know better than that. We've been doing this show long enough to know that there's a much more casual acceptance, if we're correct, in terms of spirits in Japanese culture. Right. I should know better than that. That's my bad. <laughs> no, that's okay. Because I watched enough versions <laughs> of The Ring. I know better. <laughs> that's true. And I will touch on The Ring just a little bit in oh, this segment. Good. <laughs> a little callback to our Ring episode from uh last october yeah yeah i gotta i gotta finish up my list i've seen most of them up to this point but i'm still missing a few so check back on those sorry go ahead yeah so the first thing we're gonna talk about is spirits um because ghosts are serious business in japan Mm. as as we've introed into this segment there's types of spirits and kind of the two main categories if you will are yurei which those are like the ghosts, essentially, of dead beings, typically, who have unfinished business. This is like a broad generalization. And then you also have living spirits, and these are called ikiryo. And that's what we see in the geisha. Um, There's a scene where Hokusai and Oe and the other apprentice get to witness the sleeping geisha, her soul, try to leave her body through her face. And it gets stuck in the mosquito net and doesn't actually leave. Mm -hmm. But this is a well-established piece of lore, I'll say, in Japan, where a person, particularly a woman, like almost all the cases I've seen have been about women, doing this but her soul is tormented it she's just got immeasurable like on oh what's the word i'm looking for uncontainable she can't contain the amount of anger and rage or jealousy or vengeance inside her until while she sleeps her soul leaves her body and seeks revenge because she just can't contain it and um the word Ikiryo is literally living ghost. And one of the more famous examples of this is in the tale of Genji, which is one of the most famous Japanese monogatari. And in it, Genji's lover, Lady Rokujo, torments Genji's pregnant wife, Ao no Ue, resulting in her death. So Rokujo is alive and asleep, and her soul goes and 
torments Ao, who has just given birth, I believe, until she dies. All, all from the soul of a sleeping person. Mm. So powerful, powerful beings. And even in Hokusai, they mention that the soul of the geisha could have left the mosquito net if it really wanted to. Mm. Now, the other type of ghost, the dead people ghost, the yurei, prefer to haunt in the mid-hours of the ox. So uh, for a time in Japanese history, hours were measured by the Chinese zodiac animals. And these were not necessarily single hours, but closer to like two-hour increments. So when I say the mid-hours of the ox, we're talking about like roughly 1 a.m., although that can vary because it's also the way we've told time has changed since then, so it translates differently. But we're talking your typical middle-of-the-night ghost stuff. Yeah, just the average run-of-the-mill, a little past midnight. Right, exactly. The witching hour, you know? Yeah, that's the word. And yure literally translates to secluded spirit. And the easiest way to exercise a yurei, take notes, Pretty is real. to help it fulfill its purpose. Oh, I was wrong. <laughs> What'd you say? I, I treadmill. Treadmill. <laughs> this especially has to do with hokusai, and I think the reason it's so prominent in this story, um, because in his 70s, hokusai made illustrations for the Hyaku Monogatari, which is the 100 ghost stories. And it's there's this tradition of ghost storytelling in Japan where you would gather 100 ghost or supernatural tales and then meet and share them together. And what you do is you'd light 100 candles and you and all your friends would be there. And after each story you tell, you would blow one of the candles out. So they'd get blown out one by one until you have just the one left and it's getting darker and darker and darker. And then on the last candle going out, a spirit is said to appear. That is the coolest ghost summoning story tradition I have ever heard in my entire life. Right? It kind of makes me want to do this. Like I want to go buy one of these Hyaku Monogatari and like tell the stories and blow out the candles and like yeah that'd be spooky sounds very very scary i mean it's much better than like a bloody mary story of just going in the bathroom and, and saying the name three times or something like right there's yeah. there's work in it you know right and all the spooky ghost telling up to that point like that that's a really good way to rev the engine now, you know now do you know if this was something that like had to have a certain number of people like did it traditionally have like a hundred people visit or was it any amount of people because I, I, you got to have at least, I mean, a handful. Because like, if you have like two people, that's right. fifty stories you have to gather. Yeah, I'll that's have to check that. So stay tuned for the fact check because I'm not sure what the typical number would be. Like, if you want one person for every story, or if you could just have like twelve, you know? Yeah, interesting. Yeah. So just for the record, in case you want to look one up, that practice with the candles and everything is called the Hyaku Monogatari. Kai Donkai. In case you want to do one for yourself, um, that's how you can. But, you know, beware. Um, we're not responsible for any spirits you might summon. And then I just kind of wanted to go through a couple of the examples of yurei that we have seen, either in Miss Hokusai or other movies like The Ring. Uh, one of the illustrations and stories that Hokusai contributed to that book before he died was 
a story kind of similar to The Ring. A servant lady accidentally breaks some plates, I believe it was. Anyway, her lord, master, whoever, binds her and banishes her down the well, where then her body dies, but her soul does not. Yeah, that sounds very much like The Ring. I I wonder, I would not be at all surprised if The Ring story has some correlation with that. Right, like, I guess it's mostly the well, but like... Spoilers for The Ring, by the way. Types of yure. We have the onryo, which are vengeful ghosts who come back from purgatory, try to make up for a wrong that was done to them during their lifetime. So this is like more your typical Western idea of a ghost, unfulfilled vengeance ghost. Then, and this is also kind of a common supernatural being in Japanese folklore, is the ubume which is a mother ghost who either died in childbirth or died leaving young children behind. And this is kind of sweet. This yure returns to care for her children, often bringing them sweets. That's actually really sweet. But then we've also got the earthbound spirits jibakure. These are really rare. There's only a few examples in history, but they are... They're not sticking around to fulfill a specific purpose, but instead they're bound to a place or a situation. So fulfilling their purpose doesn't release them so they can rest, right? And some famous examples of this include Juon from The Grudge. Oh, that'll be our October movie, so. Oh my gosh. I was thinking about The Ring. Yeah. Sorry. (laughs) It's okay. I feel like it could also apply to the ring, though. Uh, I mean, it's, it was it was attached to the videotape, so right, and to the well. I mean, depending on the telling. Right, but I mean, it wasn't I guess? Yeah. Anyway, the point being, even when she was fulfilled, she wasn't able to rest and move on. Right. She was still attached to something. So yeah, major spoilers, and then we'll watch out for Juon, the Grudge. Uh, for a ghosty ghost. And with that, I just wanted to do kind of a shout out, so to speak, because uh, in our previous episode for departures, we talk a little bit about Japanese funeral rites, which that's very important in helping your relative rest easy so that they do not become yurei traveling around the world. Um, So if you're interested in that, check out that episode, check out our show notes, and also a quick plug for our show notes for this episode. I've included some links to some really cool, really spooky articles, including the article that has the hoax size stories, the ones for which he made illustrations. So check it out. Very nice. Um, With that, um, I will jump into my topic, uh, which is kind of along the same veins as yours, Donna. Um, in that it was having to do with a bit of the more fantasiful, fantasiful, fanciful, fanciful. I added an entire syllable (laughs) to that word, fanciful aspects of Miss Hokusai. And I'm going to be talking about dragons. Uh, I really enjoyed the depiction of dragons in this movie, as well as the nature of having to draw them 
be something that you cannot force to happen. You have to just sort of wait and a dragon will introduce themselves to you. And that is how you're able to most accurately depict a dragon in your work. And so that led me down a research tunnel, as it were, to, to researching Japanese dragons specifically. And the first thing I wanted to note on real quick was this also led me just happenstance down a conspiracy theory that I guess many people believe is that at one time dragons did in fact exist and that the reason we do not have any fossilized remains of dragons has to do with the fact that their skeletal construction is much more similar to that of birds, which have hollow bones. And hmm. so the reason being is we don't see a lot of bird fossilizations. I don't believe this. And I feel as though it would be easily disproven. <laughs> it's funny, though, because I think I've heard that theory. Yeah. Um, I don't recall hearing a reason why we haven't discovered fossils, though. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I feel as though dinosaurs are very closely related to birds, so I would be concerned as to why their bones stayed around, but not dragons. And furthermore, why not a single one preserved in amber or tar? Um, well, and we have, I, I mean... Some birds have yeah. been fossilized. It so does. you'd think at least one dragon would. At least one dragon. But they're magical. Well. Maybe uh, that plays a role. Maybe so. But um, Japanese dragons uh, have a very like diverse history that kind of stems from a number of different parts of Asian culture, specifically from parts of you know Korea, India, but specifically China holds a lot of the historical roots to dragons in Japanese culture. Uh, talking more specifically about the three, three talent or three clawed, pardon me, or long dragons. Uh, mm. if you see those that are these really very long, intricate, uh, you know, wrapping around themselves style dragons. Those specifically are the ones that come from um, a lot of Chinese mythology as well. So we're talking less Charizard and more the dragon from Dragon Ball Z. Yes. <laughs> I was thinking about the Disney movie, and then the name left me. How to Train Your Dragons? Nope. Mulan? Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, I was like, the other one? Um, so the majority of the dragons, they act very similar in Japanese history to, to deities. And while they are incredibly powerful, not often are they actually very depicted to be violent or, you know, using their powers, some exceptions aside of that. Uh, but the majority of them are associated with rainfall or bodies of water. Um, hmm. And they're actually typically shown as wingless serpents. Um, okay, so more Gyarados. Yes, in a lot of ways. From Pokemon. Yes. Um, largely, you would see the name uh, Ryu, R-Y-U, or Ryo, R-Y-O as another name for dragons. But you also have the name uh, Tatsu, that is from the old Japanese usage of that. Um, and then also from uh, Sanskrit, there is Naga, which would be the tie from Dungeons & Dragons. There's a creature called Nagas, um, mm. which I thought was interesting as well to pull from that. But one of the most interesting things that I found uh, in regards to dragons that I wanted to kind of bring today Stepping a little bit away from Japanese history, but a creation story actually from Chinese history and mythology, which I found very, very interesting as somebody, you know, 
this is the Okie Okie Show. We're two Oklahomans from the United States. And so, you know, I, I have not been exposed to many other creation stories shy of like Christian create, creation stories involving Adam and Eve and things along those lines. So it's it was very interesting to me to hear this uh, story about the world being divided up into five parts. So before humans were involved in the whole picture of the world, the animals of the world were divided up into five kingdoms, the insects, the sea creatures, there were the land-dwelling mammals, and then there were the birds. And then there was also the three-headed monkey, which was the center of all of this. And the other kingdoms would all come to the three-headed monkey and impregnate her. And they would give birth, the monkey did, to uh, 99 eggs and they were all stolen by the other animals in the kingdom in the world um, so except for one that the monkey kept in which the monkey gave birth to a dragon that then the monkey requested that the dragon go and take back all of these eggs and in doing so the dragon began to grow and get larger so after stealing a large portion of them back from the animal kingdom the animals were like oh our bad you can have the rest of them. <laughs> and so then those eggs did begin to hatch, the final eggs being that of humans. So that is a Chinese mythology, the story of creation. And uh, I just found that really interesting in terms of how humans came about from that perspective and thought it was neat that it involved dragons. Hmm. That's about all I brought in regards to dragons. Um, there's a number of different instances that they've been used throughout Japanese culture and um, are still prevalent right on another japanese pokemon right on. anyway uh did this remind you of any uh western pop culture oh it, surely it did but i'm not thinking of anything right now i don't know i mean it i mean this is another one where it's getting to the point where i've we've seen so many of these animated movies i mean it, it's just it, this is not western but it's studio ghibli i mean mm. it's it's very much Harkening of those, I would not be surprised if some of the creators over at that studio also helped on this because they are, I mean, it's it's gorgeous. I don't know. That's the only thing I can think of in that sense that it reminds me of. You know, I think in some ways it reminds me of, this isn't the best example, but Avatar, The Last Airbender. Yeah. And mostly animation-wise, like how it deals with certain kind of mechanical sides of the animation and incorporates that in with hand-drawn characters versus like a bridge or a machine or something along those lines. Yeah. All right. Uh, this month, we're going to learn how to say good artists create, great artists steal in Japanese. I'll say this all the way through, and then we're going to break it down, and then you're going to try, okay? Yoi geijutsuka ga sakusei shimasu. Sugoi geijutsuka ga nusumimasu. So, yeah. A lot to say there. Yeah, yeah. I keep getting, I'm getting caught with the geijutsuka ga. <laughs> all right. Yoi means good. And as you could probably surmise by the repetitiveness, geijutsuka is an artist. So geijutsu being art and the ka denoting 
the the professional who creates it. So you might have heard of mangaka. It, that's the artist who makes manga, mangaka, mm. geijutsuka. And then sakusei shimas is to create, and nusumimas is to steal. Um, specifically, and it has kind of a connotation of like plagiarism. So I felt like that was a very good spot for this use. Um, and then sugoi is like awesome, great, amazing. Yoi Geijutsuka is a good artist. Sugoi Geijutsuka is a great artist. So you want to do this one little bit at a time with me? Yoi Geijutsuka. Yoi Geijutsuka. Ga. Ga. Sakusei. Sakusei. Shimas. Shimas. Sugoi Geijutsuka. Sugoi Geijutsuka. Ga. Ga. Nusumimasu. Nusumimasu. Hi. Hi. All right. Well, I think that's going to do it for us here on the Okie Show for July. Please be sure to stick around and listen to the fact check section where Donna is going to go in behind us and make certain that if we said anything out of the ordinary that is incorrect and needs some some factual checking on it, they are going to make certain that we get that corrected. More or less, I would say probably the most work aspect of this show. Uh, here recently, I've been having to edit it and, you know, we do lots of edits, but I don't think that it is uh, nearly as much work as having to to fact check it. So please stick around for that. Do you happen to know what we're doing next month? I have a pull up here as well. I'm just yeah, to test I would, you. Yeah, there. yeah. Yeah, yeah. In August, we're going to watch the 2018, I believe this one's also animated. It is. I want to eat your pancreas. That's right. You heard correctly. I want to eat your pancreas. Uh, I think we more or less picked this one on title alone. Correct. Yeah. I, I think I remember the plot sounding interesting and probably also sad. I think this is a movie that I thought was going to make me cry. So we'll give a heads up there. Yeah, I just read that uh, that synopsis. Definitely, <laughs> definitely going to do that. So uh, get ready, get your tissues, get your friend to hold your hand and watch I Want to Eat Your Pancreas. Join us in August and let us know what you think. And we've only got five months left of the year 2022. That means only five episodes left. So if there are any movies that we have not already gone over that you would like us to discuss here on the show, let us know. Send us an email uh, or hit us up one way or another. Uh, we have at least one more viewer suggestion coming up in the year. So that could be you. Let us know before the end of November. That way, when we create our 2023 list in December, we'll include that on the list as well. Yeah. And you can find us at Okie Show. That's O-K-I-O-K-I-E-S-H-O-W. We're on Twitter and Instagram. And you can also send an email to Show at gmail.com. And uh, you have to do that because I'm telling you to. Now you must, and you must do it now. You should probably just do it now before you forget. So we appreciate it. Thank you. That'll do it for us. Stick around for the fact check.
Uh, I'm Brandon. I'm Donna. Jamata. Jamata. Hi, this is Donna, and I'm back with your fact check. First, Brandon's been watching a popular animated series. You may have heard it pronounced with a hard G, Neon Genesis Evangelion, rather than a soft G, like Brandon says, Evangelion. Reddit is alight with questions about which pronunciation is correct, with some saying the Greek root of the word angelos, like angel, would lead to the soft G. Others have said that the show itself pronounces the word with a hard G, so that version is correct. Despite the debate, both are understood. Then, Brandon mentioned the filmmaker Barbara Hammer. He's right that she was active in the 1970s. Brandon watched and recommends the short films Mincy's 1974 and Audience 1983. And when we warn about spoiling The Ring, Brandon says the release date is in the early aughts. The Japanese Ringu was released in 1998, and the American The Ring was 2002. Our episode about Ringu is number 15 if you'd like to check it out. Later, when I talk about the prime haunting time for Yurei, I say it's roughly 1 a.m. This time is likely closer to 2 a.m., but your best option is to avoid the entire hour of the ox, a period of about 1 to about 3 a.m. Then, Brandon and I wondered how many people you would need for a Hyaku Monogatari Kaidonkai. There is no set number, but most often it seems to be a bunch or a handful, anywhere from a few to a hundred would work. Supposedly, most games of Hyaku Monogatari Kaidonkai end by the end of the 99th story, as participants are too afraid to tempt fate by completing the ritual. If you've ever participated in Hyaku Monogatari Kaidonkai, we would love to hear about it and add your voice to an episode. Remember, you can reach us on social at Show or send an email to okiokishow at gmail.com. Even better, you can record your story at anchor.fm slash okiokishow, and we can put your voice directly into an episode. Also, our Departures episode was 9, so please check that out if you'd like to learn more about death and funeral rites in Japan. Next, when Brandon talks about dragons, he mentions the names Ryu or Ryo. This is the Japanese term based on the reading of the kanji that also can be pronounced Tatsu. It's a simplified version of a Chinese character for dragon. In Chinese, it's pronounced long. As a fun aside, the Japanese kun reading of the symbol, Tatsu, is the same used in the word for tornado, Tatsumaki. This uses the kanji for dragon and the kanji for coil or roll, so you can picture a dragon spinning in the air creating a tornado. When Brandon mentions the Sanskrit naga, it's not a direct translation to dragon how the West typically thinks about the creature. Naga literally means serpent, and according to Encyclopedia Britannica, quote, 
in Hinduism, Buddhism, and Jainism, a member of a class of mythical semi-divine beings, half-human and half-cobra. They are strong, handsome species who can assume either holy human or holy serpentine form and are potentially dangerous but often beneficial to humans." Unquote. This also makes them closer to the type of dragon seen in Dungeons and Dragons, hence the etymology of their name in the popular tabletop role-playing game. Finally, a slight amendment to Brandon's retelling of the Chinese creation story. The monkey didn't give birth to a dragon. Initially, it was a serpent. After eating most of the eggs that the other kingdoms stole, it grew wings and other features and became a dragon. That's all for the fact check. Watch the 2018 animated movie I Want to Eat Your Pancreas to prepare for our August episode. Some countries have it on Netflix, but if you're in America, it's available to rent or buy on Apple TV. Until next time, kiwotskete.